Life is full of important questions that we ask. Questions like, who are you? And what's most important in your life? What's going to be most important in your life? Where are you going to live? What are you going to do with the bulk of your time and your energy and your resources? Who are you going to marry? These are all the big questions of life that we ask ourselves. And life seems to be this just process of asking these large questions. But there is a question that actually stands head and shoulders above these other questions. And that is the question of what do you believe about Jesus? The reason that stands head and shoulders above the other questions is because that question answers or at least helps answer the other big questions. And it actually helps answer our eternal destiny. It's a huge question for us to ask when we ask this question of who do we believe Jesus is. And Jesus is this guy who gets a lot of press this time of year, right? It's Christmas time. And so he's talked about usually as a sweet little baby in a manger. And so he is this sweet little baby, yes, in the nativity scenes. But he's actually, if you stop and think about it, a polarizing figure and arguably the most polarizing figure in all of history. Because when you look at Jesus, you have to either embrace him or dismiss him. Like there isn't really a lot of sitting on the fence with Jesus, at least not reasonable sitting on the fence. I have had conversations with friends who kind of want to be in that place, who want to say, yeah, I think that Jesus was this nice guy. You know, he was a good teacher, a moral, a moral person. Have you ever had conversations with people like that? The problem with that is those people who hold those opinions haven't really dug into Jesus because when you start to dig into him further, as C.S. Lewis is actually really good at talking about, when you dig into it further, you can't hold that place because Jesus made some extreme claims. He said, I am the son of God. And so he's either a big con artist or a crazy guy or exactly who he says he is. And so Jesus is this hugely polarizing figure in history and when we come to him we have to sort of ask this question and saying okay where do I sit do I embrace him or am I going to dismiss him and so when we talk this time of year about Jesus and about the nativity and about all the Christmas stuff we have this tendency to look at it and think oh yeah that's a nice story or that's kind of a, the normal thing to do at Christmas but what I really would like for us to dig into this evening is this thought that actually this story isn't very normal at all. It's actually a very abnormal story, a very extreme story. And herein lies the problem. Familiarity typically numbs us. I think you guys probably know what I mean when I say that. Have you, just think about, I'll give you a couple of examples. Think about flying. We get very familiar with flying and the concept that I can be this day in this part of the planet and wake up the next day in a different part of the world. But think about what that would have meant to somebody who lived like 100, 150 years ago, right? That's extreme to think that we can sit in this metal tube, uh, carbon fiber and metal, right? Um, that flies through the air and, and I sit and I watch a TV screen and I get served food. Like if you explain that to somebody from 100 or 150 years ago, they'd be like, what? That's, a, that's crazy, and yet we've become so familiar with it, we actually treat it like we're upset about it. Oh man, I, we were on the runway for an extra 20 minutes. It was horrible. 
You know, I suffered through that whole time. And then, man, security was a nightmare. Right? Like, it's absurd the way we treat it. This is an extreme thing. Familiarity numbs us. The same thing's true of scenery. Um, so, when you're here, and when we drive over from Aberdeen into Aberdeenshire, over Kirk Hill, and it's a nice day, uh, we can look out. It's been very nice the last few days, by the way, and I'm grateful for that. You drive over and you have that what? That beautiful view. But I can imagine that there is very possibly a time in the future where I'll drive over and I won't notice it. Because familiarity has numbed it out. And I use all of these illustrations to basically make the point that this actually happens with the story of Christmas. And it shouldn't be the case. We shouldn't be able to hear the story of what Christ has done in His coming... And be like, oh, that's sweet. That's nice. And so what I'm praying today that we would see is that Jesus' coming is actually mysterious, miraculous, and marvelous. That the Advent is actually an absurd story that makes it incredibly special. And so, by the way, let's just talk about Advent for a second. You guys know what Advent means? If you look up Advent in Google, what it will tell you is that Advent is the arrival of a notable person or thing. Okay, So when we say Advent and we say it's this crazy story, we're talking about this story of the arrival of, yes, somebody significant, this guy who claimed to be God's son. So there are many passages that we can look at today and say, okay, what are we going to focus on as we start out lighting our first candle and starting out our Advent series? What are we going to focus in on scripture-wise? Now, if you're not familiar, the two stories that, um, or the two books of the Bible that cover the stories of what happened in the Advent of Jesus' arrival are found in Matthew and Luke. Mark is interesting in that he just kind of jumps straight into the action of Jesus' life, which actually makes a lot of sense when you read through Mark, because it's all action, action, action. But Matthew and Luke are the ones that have all the details. And, and the details, by the way, are beautiful details. So don't get me wrong in that. We're not going to actually look at either of these books. But those, those books, they have these stories of like angels and, and this, this beautiful young lady named Mary who's very willing to listen to what God has to say to her. And there's this loyal husband, Joseph, and this crazy journey that they take. Some of the other details is they show up at this inn, and even though she's about to give birth, nobody gives up space for them. It's just this crazy story, all the way through, all the details. Unlikely birthplace, mysterious wise men, all of that stuff. But today, we're actually going to look at the fourth gospel, the fourth book in the New Testament, which is the book of John. Because what the book of John does is it actually kind of zooms us back out a little bit further than beyond jumping straight to 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And so let's turn to the book of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 1. So John 1. Now, as you're turning there, a little bit of info on this. This is a very interesting book of the Bible, John 1, because it's kind of been named. We call it the prologue. And the reason it's called the prologue is that it sets up the rest of the book of John and has a lot of detail in it about, you know, um, well, you'll see. It just kind of zooms us back out. And there's a lot of richness to the text itself. We're not going to look at the whole chapter. Instead, today, we're going to look specifically at one verse. 
Because there is a lot that could be said out of here. Derek's already read part of John 1 to us this evening in our worship time. We're going to jump to verse 14, which is a verse that really does hold a lot of significance in talking about what happened at the Advent. So John 1, 14, let's read it together. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's a short verse, but what, what does this scripture tell us? What does it highlight? Look at that word, word, at the start there. That's a little bit of a tongue twister there. Did you notice that it's capitalized in the text? Why is it capitalized? What's the point of that? Well, it's because it's personified. It's talking about someone. It's talking about Jesus. How do we know that it's talking about Jesus? Well, we know it's talking about Jesus because the whole book of John is about Jesus. Jesus' name isn't introduced till verse 17 of this chapter. But if we go over, and I won't make you do this right now, but if we were to flick over to John chapter 20, verse 31, it tells us why John is inspired by God to write this book. And he says this, But these, as in these stories and accounts of Jesus' life, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This whole book especially the prologue, all of it, is about Jesus. If we go to verse 17, where Jesus' name is first used in chapter 1, you can kind of flip down there with me. Read what it says. It says, For the law was given through Moses. That's the Old Testament leader of Israel, okay? But then it goes on and says, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now that should be setting off little alarm bells. Did we just hear grace and truth somewhere? Yeah, back in the verse we just read in verse 17. Verse, sorry, verse 14. Verse 14 says that he, the word, was full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus and the word are one and the same. And so this kind of thinking should lead us to start to ask ourselves, okay, well, why did John, why was he inspired to write the word instead of Jesus. Why doesn't the, the book of John, let's go up to John 1.1. 1, 1. Why doesn't it say in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God? By the way, it's kind of helpful for us to read it that way sometimes. But there is a reason that God chose to use this word, word. And that's because he wants us, God wants us to see beyond a shadow of a doubt the transcendency of Jesus. Because again, as we read John 1.1, which is the other place where this name word is given, it should be let, sitting off little alarm bells in our heads to say, I think I've heard this before. And we have in Genesis 1. If you go to the very first page, to the very first verse of the Bible, what does it say? In the beginning was God. So there's all this linking back and forth to show and to prove the transcendency of Jesus. Jesus isn't just another man. He was present at and before the creation of the world. He was with God and he is God. Now this is another sermon that we can kind of jump into talking about, okay, how is God, you know, distinct? How is Jesus distinct and yet still God? Like, 
How, how is there the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? This is a conversation about the Trinity, right? And, and we're not going to delve fully into that today. But I just want to highlight this because I think sometimes when we see that baby in the manger, what we picture is just another guy. And that's bad because it wasn't just another guy. This is God among us. So if we go back to verse 14, what it tells us there is that the Word and the Word, Jesus, became flesh. Do you understand the significance of what's been stated in just that little part of a sentence? The Word became flesh. Again, I think we hear that and we hear that at Christmas time often and we're like, oh, okay, yeah, cool. No, not yet, Cole. This is extreme. This is crazy that God would come and take on flesh. There is a churchy word we use for this, by the way. It's called incarnation. Think of a carnivore. What's a carnivore? This is kind of a bit gross, but a carnivore is something that eats flesh. It eats meat. And what it's essentially saying is that Jesus, God, took on flesh. He was flesh and bone. He came among us as flesh and bone. So why is this so preposterous and so miraculous all at the same time? It's because what we're being told here is the the eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God came as a baby. Think about the last time you saw a newborn baby. What can it do for itself? Nothing. It can't eat by itself. It can't change itself. It can't do anything. It just lays there. And so what the scriptures are telling us is that God eternal came and he took on flesh and came among us. That's why some Bible scholars, when they look at this this idea that God came and took on flesh, they talk about this being a bigger pill to swallow than Jesus' death or resurrection. They're saying that the miracle of the incarnation is actually a very difficult thing to get our heads around, to get our minds around. How could something so powerful take the form of something so helpless? I've been trying to think of analogies, and the best one that I can come up with is this, and it's going to fall drastically short. This is a double A AA battery. Imagine with me that we tried to take the whole of the power supplied to the European power grid and put it inside of this battery. What would happen if we tried to do that? If we just channeled all of that into here? There'd be like bolts of lightning. There'd be like a melted hole in the ground. Like it would not happen. Like it's just impossible because something so powerful cannot fit in something so tiny and broken and small. And the point that I'm trying to make is simply this. It's the same with the incarnation. How does God eternal fit into one of these? A body, a human body. It's a complete mystery. It's a mind bender. And it should be actually an uncomfortable truth. And one that we have to either believe or reject. And that's why I'm saying to you today that the nativity isn't just a nice, sweet, comfortable story. One writer put it like this, The incarnation itself is in itself an unfathomable, that means you cannot get to the bottom of it, mystery. But it makes sense of everything else 
that the New Testament contains. Basically, the belief that God came unlocks all this other belief. If God could come, because that is just beyond our understanding. If God could come, he could die. And that penalty that he paid could be enough for the sins of the world. And the rest is just, just as believable. Verse 14 is incredibly mysterious, as we've seen. As it says there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But what we see in that second part of that, and dwelt among us, is actually something incredibly sweet. You see, Jesus came, God incarnated, and he dwelt among us. It's not just this mind-bending fact, it's actually something really lovely joined with that. What we see here is that the creator joins the creation. That the author writes himself into the story. The king comes and displays ultimate humility among his subjects. Philippians 2, I can't do a better job of articulating this than what Philippians 2 does. Philippians 2 verse 5 and 7 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, as in Christians, Act like this, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, hear this, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was no small thing for God to take on flesh, to become flesh. But there was a loving intent behind all of it. He came and he dwelt among us. So guys, when we hear the nativity story, when we hear songs about Christmas or a carol or an old hymn that reminds us of what happened, what we should see is a beautiful love letter written to us. A lovely card, something, just this beautiful act of loving kindness and generosity. I actually like how the message paraphrase puts this verse. It says this, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Do you guys like that? He took on flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. He came among us. He was one with us. God didn't want to be estranged from his creation, from us any longer. He created us in, our, in his image and we had rejected him. And yet he came to be among us. And so he came and dwelt in our neighborhood. Another translation which gives us an interesting angle on this. By the way, it's good that we have multiple translations because they help us understand some of the things that are written in, the, in an original Greek language. Okay, So don't get thrown off by the fact that there's different translations that put verses a different way. We can look at it all together and it's actually really helpful and good. But if you go to this old translation, Young's literal translation, it's like really clunky. But it actually has some good stuff in it. And what it says is that God came and he tabernacled among us. Now that's an old word, but it's an old word that was used amongst the people of Israel to describe God's presence amongst them. In the time of Moses, they would set up this tabernacle, this tent that was God among them. And so there's this idea of not just God being in the neighborhood, but a holy God amongst a broken people. And so it's this really cool thought. There's all this wrapped up in these first few verses. Sorry, the first few words of verse 14. All of this wrapped in together. So it is marvelous as we look at this verse. 
But as we continue on in the verse, what we see is some outcomes of what happens from this marvellous reality of God coming and moving into the neighbourhood, tabernacling among us. Read on with me to what it says. It says, And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we can read that and we're like, okay, there's a lot of Christianese words like bundled together. What does that mean? Well, it really is pointing to some of the implications of God moving in amongst us. It's saying because God came amongst us, he revealed his glory. We got to see what God was like. We got to see what it was like to see God amongst people in an everyday, in and out kind of way. It also meant that we got to understand what grace is. It says full of grace and full of truth. He gives us this clear path towards truth. So how do we see this glory, this grace and this truth in Jesus? How do we see those things coming out? Well, yes, absolutely. We see them in his life, in his words and in his actions, right? Think about Jesus' life. As he went amongst people, do you see him glorifying God? Absolutely. Do you see him displaying grace? Yes, fully. Do you see him speaking truth? Yeah, we see all of that stuff. But where we see it ultimately culminating is in the cross. In the cross, God was glorified. And we see grace and truth nailed up and displayed for all the world, for all of history to see. The Advent is much more than God coming to hang out with people. I think that's some of the picture that we get sometimes. Oh yeah, God came and hung out with us. Gave everybody a high five, a hug, and then went back to heaven. No. God's glory, grace, and truth were ultimately displayed in his destiny. Jesus came with an end in mind. To reconcile the world to himself. And there was only one way for him to do that. Again, I could go into speaking to this, but I think Philippians 2 does a better job than I'll ever do. And so I actually want to pick up where I left off a moment ago from Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 8. Remember, it's just told us that he humbled himself in an incredible way, right? Well, it goes on. It says, and being found, this is verse 8, Philippians 2, and being found in human form, He humbled himself, so even further than being just a man, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a rich text. What a beautiful explanation of what it meant, Jesus coming. You see, Jesus, the Word, humbled himself and became flesh. He became a human so that he could die so that you and I could be made right with God. So we've got to get a bigger picture of what God's doing here. When we say Emmanuel, God with us at Christmas time, that means incredible things for us. We've got to see his purpose. My favorite Christmas song, I really like the one we did today, by the way. 
so maybe I have a new favorite. But uh, my favorite Christmas song is a song by a band called Reliant K, and it's called I Celebrate the Day. And I want to just read you a little bit of what the lyrics in that song are. It says, And I celebrate the day that you were born to die, so I could one day pray for you to save my life. That's what the nativity, that's what the advent, that's what the Christmas season is about. It's not about all the other things that we throw on it. So my question to us today is, how are we going to go through this Christmas, 2019? What's it going to look like? Are we going to be busy, distracted, unhappy, unsatisfied, sad, numb? Now, I just quickly listed off a few things that different points in my life I've felt during the Christmas season. And that's not to say that every year it's been that way, but at times, that's how I've felt. That's how I've even moved towards this story of Christ coming. I don't want that. The other option is for the reality of what we're talking about here today to break through our thick skins. And the truth of who Jesus really is to produce in us wonder and belief. And I want that for all of us, for our church family. I want that. I want that for myself. To not go through another Christmas just going through the motions. So to kind of pull this together, there's four things that I want for us to consider. The first is this. I want to ask you to pause and to consider to ask yourself, who do you believe this Jesus is? Remember, that is an important question, maybe the most important question. Who do you believe this Jesus is? Are you going to dismiss him or are you going to pull him in and say, yes, I need this man. I need this God. Consider today the absurdity of the Advent. The power channeled into a human body, into a helpless baby. Consider what God has done. Second thing I want to challenge us to do today is to believe. Do you believe that that baby sitting in that manger was the savior of the world? It's very hard for us to dismiss and say, okay, there never really was even a Jesus. Like he was an actual historical figure. What are you going to do with him? Was he a crazy person? Was he a con artist? Or was he Lord of Lords, King of Kings? And does he demand your life, your all? Consider that today. Do you believe he is who he says he is? And if you want to say yes, I want to believe that for the first time, that's awesome. We will celebrate with you together as a church family. Because this is one of those junction moments, a moment where you can make that decision. If that's you today, we can pray together, or you can pray, or just come and find myself, or Colin, or, or Derek, or somebody, the person who brought you along, and, and say, I want to believe today. I don't want to go through another Christmas just kind of ignoring this Jesus character. The third thing I'd ask you to consider is this. That this nativity story demands worship. As you think about... What we've just talked about, how can we sit there and go, oh, come, let us adore him? How can we do that? Right? 
guilty, like definite moments in my life where I've done that. But guys, we can't do that. We can't do that. God is wanting our hearts to be softened to Him today. I really sense that. I'm praying that for myself as much as I'm praying that for you. Let's not be numb. When we say joy to the world, man, there should be joy in our hearts. All of these hymns, all of these songs, all of these thoughts should stir our hearts to worship. But not just worship. Final thing, fourth thing. Proclamation. How can we contain this news to ourselves? That Jesus is God's Son who has come. This is a message to not be held in, but rather one to be shone out to the world around us. And so where again, I know I spoke to this earlier, but where has God uniquely placed you to be a herald of the good news of Jesus? This week, today, what does it look like for you not to just worship in your heart, but to worship by declaring the goodness of God in the places and the relationships He's put you in? Now, I know that's a lot of things to consider. But guys, let's not just move on and say, okay, time's got to be wrapping up here. No, let's think about these things. Jesus' incarnation is, as we've talked about, yes, mysterious. Yes, it's miraculous. And yes, it's marvelous. It's all of that stuff. But let's believe it to be true. And let's proclaim it to the broken world which God has placed us in. I'm going to pray and these guys are going to come up and lead us in some worship and response. God, we thank you that there is more to Christmas than just going through motions. There's more to Christmas than busyness and entertaining guests and preparing meals and buying presents for our kids and all the stuff that we can just put on it. God, we ask that you would forgive us today of minimizing you in the midst of all that is going on. God, we ask your forgiveness for the numbness that sometimes we feel, the familiarity we feel with this story. God, I pray that today, even in this time of response, that you would soften our hearts to see again with wonder and awe what it is that you've done in coming. Thank you that you didn't just come, but you came with an end in mind to make us right with you. For anybody here, God, who hasn't made things right with you through Jesus, Lord, I pray that right now would be a moment for them to do that. But God, I pray too that in this time that our heart to be stirred in worship, and that you would start to bring people to our mind that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus to this week. Thank you. Amen.